I'll say a few words about Professor Lips. I will not do this introduction many more times. Some of you did not make it to opening nights. So I will do it at least one more time, and then we'll get started. So we're very happy to have uh, Professor Paul Lips with us from Israel. He is a social historian. He was on the Tel Aviv University faculty for 40 years, teaching graduate and undergraduate students in the Department of Middle East and African History and the International School, where he dealt with a wide range of topics. His main interests are history of the issue, which is the pre-state pre Israel, the modern state of Israel, which is what we'll be covering on this, during this one-month series, and Arab women and nationalism in the Middle East. He taught graduate students at the Hebrew Union College in Jerusalem for 25 years, as well as at the uh, Conservative Movement Seminary, dealing with modern Jewish history, Israeli society, and the contemporary Middle East. In the Israeli Army's reserves, he lectured officers and non-commissioned officers on non-military realms. He's still active in Israel and is involved in various academic and educational fields. In the last few decades, he has traveled the world extensively, lecturing and conducting workshops in some 20 countries. He has also been a visiting scholar with many American groups in Central and Eastern Europe. He was born in Rhodesia and came as a volunteer to Israel one day before the Six-Day War on June 4, 1967. He decided to stay in Israel, married his wife Brenda, who will be here on Friday, and they have four children and 11 grandchildren who all live in Israel. Please join me in welcoming to Orange County, to CSP, to the first of our class series, Professor Paul Lips. I hope none of you have neck problems, because I move all the time, which might be good for you. Hopefully, yes. Um, the session today is Holocaust Survivors Come Home, 1945-1962. Anyone know by chance why 1962? Does it ring a bell with anyone? Yeah? Eichmann. Eichmann trial. Good. So the Eichmann trial, a definitive event which had an impact on the whole question of Holocaust survivors. I'll go a little bit further than 1962. Um, just very quickly, the next three sessions will be on Yemenite Jews, Beta Yisrael, Ethiopian Jews, and then the, the fourth one will be Russian-speaking immigrants. In terms of the readings, uh, if you've got the little booklet there, my readings uh, have two approaches depending on the topic. Sometimes the reading is a topic that I haven't touched at all in the lecture, so it's kind of an additional realm, and the reading for this particular session today is a wonderful article by Dahlia Offer, a professor at the Hebrew University, and the article is about memory, and I'm not going to deal with memory, so it's one of the case studies where if you want to sort of advance a topic which I myself didn't have time to touch, then read the article. Some of the articles I would recommend, particularly for people for whom the topic is unknown. You, I think you'll find it useful to read the article. Sometimes you, it might even be a bit of a repetition with what I'm saying in the lecture, but I think it's much easier sometimes, rather than having a whole realm of unknown concepts, to have some introduction. Uh, I think it'll make it a little bit, bit easier. Um, on almost all the lectures, there's a, a bibliography. And um, I, I say now, and uh, we'll get my email address out to you, I've said in all my teaching career, uh, almost 50 years of teaching, that for me, the job never ends at the end of the lecture. It's part of a dialogue. And I do welcome uh, uh, 
you people corresponding with me at a later time. It might be a few years down the line when something came interesting. You feel that I might be able to help you. You might be interested in new literature or something. Please contact me. So this is a four-part series, but the relationship only starts. And it carries on. I re receive a significant number of emails from people around the world. The funniest one I've ever seen was uh, an email from a woman said, uh, you gave a lecture to our group two months ago. I was the person, the second on the right in the second row. <laughs> so I replied, I'm sorry, I can't quite remember who you are. Please send me a picture, but let's start the relationship. <laughs> so that's what happens, but I'm always happy. Um, I want to make a very quick one additional comment before I go on. Uh, I arrived here on Friday morning. Uh, it's been an amazing experience, and I do want to mention just the people who have been very kind so far. Because people are kind, and in, in, in Israel, we don't always know how to say thank you to people. In America, you do an excellent job. So to Ari, Amy, and the family who looked after me on Friday night, I had a wonderful dinner, managed to speak to people from the age of one years old to about 50. Uh, to Martin, who did an amazing tour for me on Shabbat, I can be your guide in Orange County now. Uh, and he gave me the wonderful books I've been reading up, and I've got an idea of the history of the Jews of Orange County. Uh, to Beverly and Jake, who educated me in the art of Santa Ana on, uh, Friday, on Saturday night. Uh, to Ada and Rosella, who are darlings. They're dealing with all my deepest personal problems, and I want to be grateful. They'll tell you my personal problems might not be less personal, but it's really wonderful. And to Loni and Jay who uh, looked after me on uh, Lugano Beach yesterday, and it was lovely having lunch on the beach. Uh, to Ros and Elliot, wonderful to see you here. And to all of those who are one way or other responsible uh, for the scholar program. Sorry, I've been taking a tablet to try and keep me awake in the day and sleep at night, so my, you'll see me drinking a lot. This is regular water. Um, the issue of Holocaust survivors has a very interesting component from the Zionist side. Two Zionist leaders, Zev Jabotinsky, the leader of the revisionist wing, and Chaim Weizmann, the leader of the centrist Zionist wing, both had fears before the Second World War that something bad might happen. They didn't predict it. The idea that people actually thought that Shoah, Holocaust, would ever happen was out of the mind of anyone. No one could ever imagine a major country in the world, Germany, would dedicate so much of its energy to destroying a small people. No one would have imagined that was possible. But they had already brought up the idea. During the Second World War itself, the Yeshuv, which is the name for pre-state Israel. So if I do use Yeshuv, please, and I don't give the English, please know it's the period of Jewish existence, presence in, the in what became Israel. It was then Palestine or Eretz Israel up to 1948. During the Second World War, a, a group of people who were still under the British mandate, so they didn't have any sovereign power, already realized something which is very important and has been consistent through modern Jewish history, that we are responsible for each other wherever we are. An unbelievable situation. And in parenthesis, I want to tell you, I've met Palestinians 
who've asked me to explain to them what is in the Jewish essence which they feel isn't within the Palestinian essence. So I've had this discussion in very interesting situations. And this little pre-state group of people, at that time led by David Ben-Gurion, who I'll be going into more detail tomorrow evening, recognized that they had a responsibility for what was going on with the Jews of Europe. Now, information come, came through slowly. It's only really towards the end of 1942 that there's some sort of awareness of what's really happening in Europe. Remember, the First World War had a high level of disinformation. So many people thought that they were getting these rumors. And they were just rumors because in the First World War, there had been a confusion of information. What some people are using the term today, fake news. So in this kind of situation, uh, it was pretty unclear exactly what was needed. But David Ben-Gurion, and he was accused for not doing enough, but we'll discuss that tomorrow evening, uh, tried to encourage uh, two uh, actions to come about. Firstly was to get what were called Palestine Jews um, to join the Allied army, and they did join parts of the British army in particular, and Jews around the world, as you people well know in the United States, got involved, and sometimes with the consciousness as the war went on and America became more involved, many of them were committed to helping the Jews get out of Europe at the end of the war. Um, and the uh, other side was the famous parachute story of Hannah Senesch, who some of you may have heard of Hannah Senesch, a wonderful, wonderful young woman who wrote uh, beautiful poetry, and some of her songs are... Uh, part of this collective Jewish consciousness uh, until today. But David Ben-Gurion and that group of people could do very little. The British government was controlling Palestine at the time, so they could only do uh, what they could do. But in May 1945, a new reality developed which had unbelievable impact on the whole of the Jewish people uh, until today, I believe. On May the 8th and 9th, the Second World War ended. It had been a horrendous event, certainly for the Jewish people, six million gone, half the Jewish people killed, but for other countries and other people as well, 27 million Russian citizens were killed. By the way, for them, that percentage is a small percentage. For the Jewish people, it's a massive, 50% is a massive percentage. But what happened immediately after the war, that all the people started going back home. That's what you do. There was mass movement of people during the Second World War period, trying to get out of the, the, uh, the, the fighting zones. Two groups had nowhere to go. Questions, Jews and the Roma, the gypsies. Two homeless people. Now, not all the Roma had been displaced, but almost all the Jews had been displaced. So the Jews, like the other millions of people, started going home. That's one of the initial responses at the end of a war, and you've been displaced. The level of anti-Semitism in Europe after the Second World War was in many cases higher than before the Second World War. Why? Because the Jews went and wanted to go home. 
and home is a building. And they went into the building, as I myself have found in Poland many times, I've been to Poland many occasions, and I've spoken to non-Jewish people who said, our home had been broken, destroyed, bombed by the Nazis. There was an empty building, and we went into the empty building, and that's our home. But that home had belonged to a Jew. In the case of Poland, there was a pogrom where 42 people were killed after the Second World War. There were a lot of reasons. I won't go into the, all the... There's an ongoing debate in Poland at the moment of the whole story of, of the Holocaust in Poland. But the reality for the Jewish people was that they realized they didn't have a home. By the way, even in the case of Netherlands, which had been a country friendly to the Jewish people through history, from the 16th century onwards, even they went back and they found there was a level of anti-Semitism which they'd never felt before. Reasons for it. So these Jews who had tried to get to home came back to what had been established by the major powers in Europe at the time, the American government, the Russian government, the French government, and the British government, the displaced person camps. Now, the displaced person camps were horrendous. And how do we know it was horrendous? We have a most remarkable historical document written by um, Earl Harrison, a friend of Harry Truman, of major significance to the Jewish people, who in August 1945, that means it's a few months after the end of the Second World War, was sent out to the displaced persons camp because there had been information that the treatment by the American army of people in the displaced persons camp was not very good, to put it mildly. By the way, the great Israeli historian, Yudit Bauer, believes that the Americans were unfairly criticized. They didn't have the finance, they didn't have the money, and looking after the Jews from an American army perspective wasn't really the main agenda. They had other agendas, very complex agendas, tied up with Berlin and other things. But the Harrison report said, I'll quote one sentence. He said that when he went to this displaced person camp under the American army control, which was, by the way, the best DP camp to be in, the worst was the Russian, the Americans were the best, Jews who could choose one way or the other always went to the American DP camps. Earl Harrison walking around at the DP camp made an unbelievable observation. And he writes in the report, which he gives to Harry Truman when he gets back home, and that report says, I found people walking around the American DP camp dressed either in their concentration camp garb or SS uniforms, period. I don't know which they disliked most. Either after the Shoah, to be in con still in concentration camp clothing, or just imagine the situation of walking around in an SS uniform. So this had a tremendous effect. And by the way, Harry Truman, who I'll be speaking about uh, in a later session uh, in one of, at one of the synagogues, Harry Truman himself 
was very much affected by the Harrison report and is one of the reasons that, of many reasons, that he became very sympathetic to the uh, Jewish cause. But what happened to the Jewish people? There were basically seven responses. First response of Jewish people, probably all people in the situation, let's try and locate family. One of the most remarkable projects of my various activities in Yad Vashem, which I did partly in the, as an army person and many, many, in many projects as a civilian, the, one of the most interesting projects is trying to bring families together through the sheet, the, sheet, the family sheet. By the way, I read an article this morning of last week uh, someone who lived in England who was believed to be dead was actually found to be alive and met uh, his uh, cousin who he hadn't seen for 75 years. The search for family goes on. It was painful because people didn't know what had happened anywhere else. No internet, you know, nothing that of the communications we have today. They went home and for many people, as we know, and I'm sure many of you know, they have spent years and years and years trying to find family. And in Israel, until now, you have every now and again a program. Do you know so-and-so who was in a particular school who was my best friend when we were nine years old? And every now and again, they come together. Most remarkable. But clearly, for the overwhelming majority, there was no family. So they looked for family they didn't have. They looked for home and they couldn't go there. Some of them were angry and wanted to carry out revenge. There were cases of Jewish concentration camp survivors who killed Nazis, a minor number. Some people have made it a big story that they were angry and they were acted terribly. It's ridiculous. But they were angry and there were cases of revenge. There was even a discussion by some of the survivors to poison the rivers of Europe, an impossible project, and they dropped it a few days later. So what do you do? You basically, at that time of history, have very few alternatives. Some of you are accepted because you have family members in America or in England in some of the places, but that England was a tough alternative because they themselves had gone through the Battle of, of Britain. Americans could every now and then bring some people. I know people who were brought in as orphans who were brought up by American families, sometimes very elderly people who had no understanding of what the children were, but they did an, an amazing thing of bringing in these children in that situation. But for our story, the most important issue is the visit by David Ben-Gurion on five occasions to the displaced persons camp. And David Ben-Gurion said, we need these people. There was, however, an argument in what was to to become Israel. For example, Yari, one of the leaders of the Mapam leftist party at that time, was very worried about Holocaust survivors. Because at that time, this concept of role model was very important in psychology. And he believed that the role model of Nazi would be, have been implanted into the Holocaust survivors. And he used the term, we don't want people who have Nazi-like features 
Now let's understand where he came from. The state of Israel hadn't yet been built. It was going to get built in another two or three years. You want people who are going to build the country. And it was clear in one way or the other that the Middle East was the toughest neighborhood in the world. And there would be a war of some kind. Who do you want to fight wars? Young people. And so people like Yari, not a bad person by any means, he says, maybe those Holocaust survivors aren't the ones we want. But the David Ben-Gurion school of thought won over, which was the majority view. And then the story is, what do you do? How do you bring them home? What is home? Well, home is a new home. It's a country which hasn't been created. And not only isn't it a country that hasn't yet been created, it's a country where if you look at it from a realistic perspective of that time, it was a country where those very people who had just been through the horrors of the Holocaust were in fact going to find that, and it happened in many cases, that two weeks after their arrival in that then Palestine, later the state of Israel, they would be given a very short training period to fight in Israel's war of independence. Just imagine, that's home. This is where you want to be. And in fact, at a certain time, it is believed that half the soldiers in the Israeli defense forces were Holocaust survivors. Just imagine that. In many cases, after two weeks training uh, at maximum. As an educator in the Israeli army, I always took an unbelievable case study. In the Battle of Latrun, for those of you who are familiar with Israel, a very important battle, crucial battle, one of the hardest battles of the, uh, Israel's War of Independence, during the order to retreat, because it was against the Jordanian army, the Jordanian army was very good, trained by the British. During the, battle, during the retreat in the Battle of Latrun, the order to retreat had to be translated into seven different languages. These people didn't know Hebrew. No, they hadn't gone to Ulpan. They hadn't gone to an immersion class. All that had been done in the two weeks was giving them a little bit of, you know, 101 military training. Very basic, by the way on equipment that changed all the time because you didn't know when the weapons were going to be there. You never knew if the, if the ammunition was good for the guns you were using. It was horrendous. The information we have is amazing, horrifying information. And therefore, this was home. What an amazing situation. What a tragedy. Tragedy of tragedy. The home you came from is no longer your home. The family you're looking for, you can't find. And you might spend generations trying to find them. The home you've been brought to is a home where having been through the traumas of war, you're now going to have to be a soldier fighting. Now on Mount Herzl, when I've guided off Israeli army officers at Mount Herzl, one of the most dramatic sites of that particular place, which I believe is one of the most profound learning sites in the whole of Israel, 
and we're not short of profound learning sites. On that particular occasion when I would take the army officers and we would go to the section of the people who had been killed in, as soldiers, so-called, two-week training, but soldiers, the most powerful statement to explain what I've just said is what is written on the gravestones. In many cases, the body isn't there. But you have Moshe. Now, on an regular Israeli gravestone at, at Mount Herzl, you have the full name, you have the name of the mother and the father, you have the name and the country or town of birth, you have the date of immigration to Israel, Aliyah, and then you have the date of death. So it's a kind of it's a abridged biography of a human being, in itself fascinating just to go around and do an analysis of what's there. But on the section of the people who died, who were killed in 1948, you have Moshe, Russia, question mark, date of birth, unknown, date of immigration, unknown. All you have is Moshe, and maybe we know where Moshe comes from. Why? Because in the two weeks that the fledgling Israeli army, hardly an army at that time, they didn't spend time being good documenters of information. By the way, we're going to find this in some of my other sessions as well, the problem of documentation in Israel. When we look at the Yemenites, we'll come back to that uh, very strange, the same point. So what are we having here? We're having here a situation which David Ben-Gurion would describe in the following words. Seeing what was happening and understanding as the information slowly came through of the death rate, he made the following outstanding important statement. For thousands of years, we have been a people without a state. Now we are a state without a people. It says it all. It says it all. You know, you've got your state. May 1948. You're still bringing in displaced person people. There were about 160,000 people still in the displaced person camps when the State of Israel was created. Why were they there? Because the British didn't allow them in. Famous exodus. And what happened to the people who were in Israel at the time? That's really been one of the big questions. They didn't like it. Why didn't they like it? Because if you had been a young soldier fighting in Israel's war of independence, you'd also been through a trauma. 1% of all Israeli citizens died in Israel's war of independence. Who were they? You do a demographic analysis. The majority of them are young Israelis between the ages of 18 and 25. So your 1% is so high in terms of those same people who a new country desperately needs to survive 
And they had fought this very difficult war, November 1947 to January 1949. On certain days, it seems that Israel would never come about, regardless of what the United Nations had said by the UN Declaration. And they saw themselves, and this term becomes very powerful in Zionist history, they saw themselves as the new Jews. They saw themselves as people who could fight and would fight. And when they met the Holocaust survivors, they developed the situation of no language connection. No language by, by, by the virtue of the fact that the survivors in many cases didn't know Hebrew. But even when that problem was worked out, you have this mammoth division between two understandings. The young Israelis saying that we have fought for the Jewish people. And when they turned to the Holocaust survivors and they asked them, did you fight? Well, what a question. You can fight in the situation of the Shoah. No military training. In the case of Poland, only a small group, the communist Polish partisans were prepared to give the Jews arms. The Jews were the underdogs of all the countries they were living in. How could they possibly fight the Nazis? A powerful military force. And what therefore happened in that moment of history which is so painful, which by the way Israel didn't want to deal with, but fortunately, when I, by the time that I got involved in Yad Vashem, we were talking about this. We said we have to talk about it. We have to mention a very, very tough issue. That young Israelis didn't stand at Haifa port welcoming the Holocaust survivors. And here we have to use our eyes and the image to understand what's happening from their perspective. Who did they see? For example, when the British brought about a forced unloading of the Exodus people to be returned, in this case to Germany, in other case to uh, uh, British-controlled um, uh, camps in Cyprus in particular, or in many cases they were brought onto a, a detainment center of Atlit in Israel. Who did they see? Who did that young soldier, 19-year-old soldier, who believed that he had fought for the state of Israel or was about to fight for the state of Israel, he saw, and I'm sorry to use the expression, an emaciated population who could never fight. And so this image of the new Jew, the strong Zionist Jew who'd been on the kibbutz from 1909 onwards, or that person's parents, that person who believed that she or he was the future of the Jewish people. And on the other hand, the message that the Holocaust survivors got was, we're going to have you here, but you're really not what we actually want. This was a tragedy. But the story got better slowly. Various institutions were set up in Israel to recognize what was actually happening and what should happen. Um, Yad Mordechai was established, the south of the country. To remember Mordechai Anelevich, uh, the leader of the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising. 
Lochamea Getoot, the ghetto museum in the north of Israel. A kibbutz established which was almost totally filled by Holocaust survivors. Why? Why did you do that? Why did they do that on the kibbutz? Because the Holocaust survivors felt they couldn't explain their story to anyone. You can only explain it to someone who's been in that same situation. You know, the very first time I went to Auschwitz in 1990, and I'd been reading and I knew the stuff, and I was the scholar of a young uh, Chicago group, and I thought I understand it. I didn't understand it. I had to go back three or four times to even start to understand it. So here you have the situation where Yad Mordechai and Lochamea Getaot, which is the kibbutz, both of them having a high number of, of Holocaust survivors. And then in the 1950s, Yad Vashem. Now Yad Vashem recognized that there were a number of challenges which were required, which had to be dealt with. One was a gathering of material. And as we know, Yad Vashem is, has the most remarkable center in the world of Holocaust-related material. Excuse me. The other, it was water, by the way. Uh, the other was um, legislation. How do you celebrate Yom HaShoah? I won't go into all the educational discussions. But there was a serious problem. How do you present Holocaust survivors? So initially in Israel, you presented the Holocaust survivors of those who had been fighters. The Warsaw Ghetto Uprising. Professor Manuel Gutman wrote the, the first of many, many books. Presented Holocaust survivors as fighters. The feeling that you have to change the image. But Israelis were speaking to Holocaust survivors. And those Holocaust survivors said, no, we, we, we didn't fight. And that comment, which I find almost impossible to say, but we have to say it, that those people who said, and they were quoting Abba Kovner out of context, like sheep to the slaughter, which we try not to say in Israel today. I'll say it here because at the back of your mind you've probably heard it. So the question is, how do you pre present the material? And Dalio Offer, by the way, in her article, deals with the issue of memory, and that's why I suggest you'll find it very interesting uh, to use it. There was a major problem. Greater than setting up institutions was what was happening in the schools. Now, until 1975, until 1975, there was no Israeli history book which had more than 25 pages dedicated to the Shoah. An Israeli youngster, and I've spoken to many of them, many of my colleagues at Yad Vashem, they were telling me that they were at high school in that period of the 60s, and there was nothing about Shoah. 1975. Now, the problem, what I'm saying here, is that here there's a, a real issue of education. Education programs only are integrated into schools very slowly because they should have been better. 
and now they're a great deal better. Israeli schools have mandatory studying on Holocaust, March of the Living, visits to Poland, all those kind of things. But there was a crisis of understanding. And here we just have to look for a few moments to the probably the most dramatic event of Israeli history, which, which educated the Israeli population, who had their own agendas, by the way. They had their own agendas. There had been a war in 1948. There was a war in 1956. There was ongoing, ongoing unrest in the various border areas with the Arab countries around us. But the changing event was, as a gentleman mentioned earlier, the capture of Eichmann in Argentina and his trial. That trial, in terms of the historical memory in Israel, is the most important event. Because for the first time in that period of Israeli history, almost all Israelis heard for the first time what had happened. The trial was broadcast on radio. And by the way, even when I arrived in Israel in 1967, I remember every time there was a news broadcast, which is about every seven minutes in Israel, um, the, the people in, in, in the 60s and 70s would stop talking because they'd already picked up that the news can be so disastrous. You have to know what's going on. No cell phones and things like that. But what was the importance of the Eichmann trial? Not so much Eichmann himself. That was one part. The most important things was listening to the voices of Holocaust survivors. And vast amounts of material after some time have now been translated into English, access, easily accessible. And what did they learn? What did Israelis learn from the Eichmann trial? They learned that it wasn't just those people who had managed to locate an old-fashioned hand grenade, as you see at Yad Vashem on the mural there on the, the, the wall uh, in Warsaw next to the, uh, the big museum of Pauline. It wasn't just survival, wasn't about only holding a hand grenade, which was a minimal phenomenon, but staying alive every day. That was what it was all about. Therefore, the Eichmann trial brought about, in 1962, he was executed in 1962, brought about the first real deep change within Israeli society uh, in terms of who the Holocaust survivors were and how they had suffered. And at that time, second-generation survivors come on the scene. And people begin to understand between the parents and the children, their major, major issues that had to be dealt with. But there was an additional event, and that was the Six-Day War. By 1967, Israel thought it was quite strong. But in the famous waiting period between before the start of the Six-Day War, three, three weeks, when it was pretty clear that a war was going to break out, Israelis 
for the first time, with the realization that they had an army, and they were relatively speaking strong, at least compared with what had been the reality earlier. And they understood that even with an army, you are vulnerable. A remarkable book, which if any of you can get hold of, called The Seventh Day, it's translated from Hebrew, The Seventh Day, Soldiers Speak About the Six-Day War. What an amazing book. When I started reading, and I wanted to get the inner views of people, not just the analytical stuff. And this is a section, a selection of uh, testimonies by young kibbutz members. At that time in history, the kibbutz was the, kibbutz members were the core of some of the elite units of the Israeli army. So they were aware, more than the regular soldier, of what the power of the Israeli army was. In that book, the seventh day, Israeli coming from the secure environment of the kibbutz said, now we understand the concept of vulnerability. That meant when they tied the dots together, at that stage they could really get an understanding of what it had been, or even Possibly they could get an understanding of what it had actually been to be a Holocaust survivor with no power, no friends, no allies, and even if you happen to survive, often no family and no home as you wanted. Today, the position is different. Today, Israeli youngsters and everyone else goes to the modern Yad Vashem, much more impressive than the old one, which was designed to depress and depress and depress you, and you didn't want to go a second time. Now, one can go many times to Yad Vashem. Now, Yad Vashem and the other institutions have remarkable educational programs, really trying very, very hard not only to deal with the immediate story of the Jewish people, but looking at trauma in a broader global sense, to try and understanding Israelis to not be too only isolated within the Israeli context, but understand trauma a, a little bit broader, with Holocaust obviously uh, being the, the central issue. Um, the German government... West German government. With all our criticism of Germany, and I've got a long list of criticisms of Germany, they all together, by the last figure that I could locate, gave $89 billion to Holocaust survivors, most of which went to the state of Israel. But just let me end with, once again, the tension of this question of Germany. The German government was very, very generous. The reparations concept, and just let me define reparations, reparations is money which has been given to Holocaust survivors for property and later on for days lost in work, not compensation for loss of life. But it's been a powerful issue. 
for people who had lost everything to get something back. But as the reparations discussion started in 1952, there was the closest that I've seen to a civil war in Israel after the creation of the State of Israel. There was a vote in the Knesset. Menachem Begin gave a speech, a very important figure, later to become Prime Minister. I'll be dealing with him in my uh, leaders' uh, series. Made a powerful statement. The Israeli police were using gas to try and control the population outside the earlier Knesset. And Menachem Megan made the following speech. The Israeli police are using the gas which they received from Germany, which was not true, as he found out later. So there was a deep division within Israeli society. In the late 1950s, Israel bought arms from Germany. And understandably, Holocaust survivors and other people were horrified. A little later, Israel sold arms to Germany. And everyone was horrified once again. In the 1960s, German volunteers wanted to come and volunteer in Israel. And only about 3% of the kibbutzim were prepared to accept them on the kibbutzim. And only in 1965 were diplomatic relations established between Germany and the State of Israel. And even then, it was very, very hard, and I understand it, very, very hard to even accept that. So that's our story. Tragic story, filled with problems, in a complex country like Israel, there are always many, many perspectives. But I want to end with a, an image. When I arrived in Israel, in the middle of summer, where pretty much Israeli style before they realized the danger of sun exposure, walked around in short sleeve shirts. Every now and again, I saw the following picture, image. It remains in my, in, my, in my head. On a bus in Jerusalem, I saw a man with a long sleeve shirt on one side and a short sleeve shirt on the other. So I'm thinking new modern, you know, new clothing style. No. He had a number. But now I see Israelis walking around, and if they have a number, num then uh, they've got a number. And there's more understanding. And we are better educated. And we have tried to do better with Holocaust survivors. Not always as good as we can do. We have stories of lonely Holocaust survivors. We have stories of Holocaust survivors who haven't received the money they should have received. We have organizations which try and help Holocaust survivors to claim what is their right to claim. It isn't great, but we are stronger. And hopefully, never in Jewish history again will we have to face what we faced at those traumatic and tough days of our past. Thank you very much.
time for a few questions, uh, about 10 minutes or so. If you have a question, raise your hand and don't know how to phrase this question, and it may be unfair. Now we're seeing, um, I, you and I won't see it, but we will see the end of the survivors. What's your comment? So the end of the survivors is clearly thanks to people like Spielberg. It's true. My last visit to Poland uh, two years ago, I think we probably caught the last articulate Holocaust survivor uh, in Warsaw, or maybe one of the few. We're going to have to pass on the story. It's, it's our responsibility. And um, there, there cannot be an event where we can ha leave it just with the people who experienced. By the way, we're lucky because of documentation. We're lucky because of the movies that exist both Hollywood movies and the serious other kind of movies, there are always going to be people who say it didn't happen. There are always going to be the Holocaust deniers. But I think more important than recognizing the existence of Holocaust deniers is to place on our shoulders the responsibility for carrying on the story. And we do. In Israel, it's easier because it's part of the program. But in Jewish day schools around the world, wherever I'm going, there's tours to Israel, the March of the Living, all these other programs are, I think, as a pretty good job, by and large, has been done. So I think that is really uh, what has to happen. Thank you. Yeah. I, I just hand it out because I like everyone to hear the exact questions. Do you think the worldwide rise of anti-Semitism is linked to the decline of living survivors, that no matter how much we tell the story, we don't have a person? Um, important question. I would imagine that global anti-Semitism, that may well be one of the reasons, but I think there are many, many other reasons which are not exactly connected to Holocaust survivors, because many people don't know that part of the story. Surveys in Poland, for example, have shown that people, uh, uh, Polish people uh, think that uh, a Holocaust is all about Poles who were killed. You know, the famous figure which everyone quotes, uh, Poland lost six, six million people were killed in Poland. But listen to the terminology. All Polish citizens. 3,000 are called Poles, and three, sorry, 3 million are called Poles, 3 million are called Jews. The Jews are Polish citizens also. So it's tied up with some other issues. I think contemporary anti-Semitism is filled up with masses of masses of issues. Sometimes it might be because of Israel and they don't like Israel's policies, but I think much more it's actually tied up with dream deep psychological issues which have appeared at different moments of history. You can look back at various stages, synagogue dobbings, uh, uh, cemeteries being destroyed, horrible comments being made. The tragedy is that history never ends. And I think that's what really, the contemporary reality is part of historical memory. An important question, perhaps to go into detail another time. Uh, four questions, so. Okay, I'll try and give um, quick answers. Okay, to answer, <clears throat> I have a cold, I'm sorry. 
to answer your comment about the lack of empathy of the original Jewish population in Israel, 650,000, how would you explain the battles of the Haganah and the Eitzel against the British who were trying to prevent all the uh, boats of the DPs coming into Israel? They wanted them to, they wanted the immigrants to come in. They weren't stopping the immigrants coming in. But when the survivors came, oh, sorry, I'm sorry, you were right. I was told. So when the, the problem isn't that they try to stop the survivors coming, exactly the opposite. David Ben-Gurion says you have to come home. No argument on that level. The argument was that when the Israelis saw those Holocaust for the survivors for the first time, it wasn't what they wanted to try and develop the country. So, by the way, it's a known phenomenon. Countries can want immigrants until they meet them. It's all another story. And that's what happened here. And the, 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 um, uh, the understructure, the infrastructure of Israeli society was so weak in the early days that, uh, you know, you want people who can get the country moving. And in a sense, I can understand where it comes from. But thank you for the question. Good. Maybe you'll just ask and I'll answer here. In the movie Exodus, there's a kind of subtext that the, in effect, the state of Israel's existence is justified somehow by atonement for the Holocaust. And yet there is, and, and that worked in a sense for some number of years, and you know, there is maybe some truth, but it, there's something problematic about it because the Arabs will turn that around and say, well, why should we pay for Europe's problem? And I'm wondering what has been the inside Israel view of this? Fascinating. This, by the way, is often the basis for three-day seminars, so I'll give the shorter answer. Excellent question, thank you. The state of Israel came about because of the development of the early Zionist movement from the beginning of the 19th century. Holocaust Shoah damaged the development of the state. So many people who could have come and developed Israel weren't there. So by and large, it wasn't the reason for the state of Israel. The state of Israel came about because of Zionism. Holocaust gave a sense of urgency. And I think it's a, a subtle play here, but that is the difference. Israel would have come about, maybe later, but because of the Holocaust, it was so much more desperate that that really speeded up the process. And I think that's it, and it's an ongoing discussion. Most Israelis would essentially agree with what I think they've said. And if they don't agree with me, they're wrong. <laughs> um, one, one more question? Yeah, please. Uh, if you can shout, sorry. I certainly can. Back, back to that time period with the early Yeshua and the new Israelis, the young people, was there also a whole um, section of our history that it was the Sephardim, those were the Sephardim, and those coming over, the Holocaust survivors, were the Ashkenazi. So that there was that conflict in different cultures and the integration into a Israeli society. Excellent. So what happened with the... Okay, sorry, the question was, you know, Holocaust survivors were basically an Ashkenazi phenomenon. So what happened to the Sephardim 
those people from North African uh, and Middle Eastern countries in terms of not being part of it. What happened in Israel, and that was very interesting, the history of North Africa has been emphasized. And the, the Nazi present in North Africa has been emphasized. And those cases of people, say, from Greece, from Saloniki and North African countries, uh, the island of Rhodes, for example, who were sent to Auschwitz, has been brought up again to essentially say, it's true, the Ashkenazi uh, Holocaust dialogue and issue is the central one, but we were also very, very close to it as well, and it could have been uh, much worse for us. But your point is valid. You are more affected by something which is part of your family, even if you weren't there. My family wasn't in Europe at that time, but my wife's family is. So it's become a personal issue through that kind of relationship. So, but, but there is an issue, it's very, very difficult. By the way, there are other difficult issues in terms of the ultra-Orthodox who opposed use of military force and didn't, didn't belong to the army in 1948. So you're absolutely right. There are many spin-off effects in terms of trauma. Trauma is never something you can put nicely in a little box because it's got so many other components. This is also a very important question of how you integrate, how you bring people into it. And my very last point is, when the Russian Jews arrived in the 1990s, we'd stopped talking about survivors. But they came and said, we were the survivors in the forest. And the German government has actually recognized them as groups who should receive financial assistance. So that's an ongoing story. Uh, which comes in on then. Thank you very much. Okay, so our, our next program in this series, Exploring um, Creating a Nation and the, some of the subgroups that make up Israel today, is uh, the Yemenite Jews. So we'll be back. Oh, note the following. So um, you know we moved here because you're here. We were supposed to be across the street, but we couldn't fit in the room, so we moved here. Um, next week, we can't stay here because they have a program, so make sure you know, I believe that our lunch programs this week are in Quail Hill, okay? So if you go to the JCC next week, they, no one will be there. If you come here, no one will be here. So go for, for, our, for our, all our programs this week are here. Next week, two of the programs are in Quail Hill. You should have all received an email from me telling you where to go. Tomorrow, David Ben-Gurion, founder and builder, in this room, 7.30 p.m., Roz and Elliot, we continue to fetch you and to thank you for all you've done for the community and our programs. And we have David Ofer here from last year and Ada, so I like the fact that our honorees come to our programs. Have a good afternoon.